So yes, yeah, so um, this talk is going to look at how we perform diagnosis in clinical practice, and it's going to introduce some um, concepts about how we may be able to do this better, which will have implications for practitioners and also for, for teaching as well. So um, in, in terms of an outline of what this talk's going to cover, we're going to cover the philosophy of diagnosis, um, which is more interesting than it sounds, and then we're going to then look at how good we are at diagnosis, um, what approaches we have, and how we might improve these approaches. So to start off, the philosophy of diagnosis. So in terms of definitions of what a diagnosis is, it can be used as a verb, um, which is the, the act of identifying a disease from its signs and its symptoms. Um, it can also be used as a noun. Yeah, there we go. Um, which is a distinctive character, characterization in precise terms. But that doesn't really tell us what it is exactly. So the verb part of things we'll get to later on. Um, the noun part of things, um, we're going to have a vote. So I'm going to put up some, some lists of... I'm going to put a list up one by one of, diagnose, of possible diagnoses. Um, and what I'd like... I'd like people to raise their hand if they think this is a valid diagnosis. So, easy one to start with. So, congestive heart failure. So, who thinks that is a diagnosis? Good, well done. Pulmonary infiltrate with ears infills. Is that a diagnosis? Okay, very good. Cruciate ligament rupture. Is that a diagnosis? Good, doing well. Gingivitis. Diagnosis. Femoral fracture, is that a diagnosis? Good. Pyoderma, is that a diagnosis? Wenkenbach phenomenon, is that a diagnosis? You don't have to know what it is, but it is a condition. <laughs> okay. So um, what, we did there, what I did there with, with this um, is these are commonly, commonly quoted as diagnoses in clinical practice. Um, but... The top one, I would agree, would be a diagnosis. The second one is descriptive, so whether that is a diagnosis or not, who knows. The third one is explanatory and, and descriptive. Uh, gingivitis, I would say that's a clinical sign rather than a diagnosis. Femoral fracture is a diagnosis of sorts, but um, it doesn't really tell us that much. Pyoderma, I would say that's a clinical sign rather than necessarily a diagnosis. Wenkenbach phenomenon. It is a diagnosis, but it doesn't really explain anything to us unless we've got the background knowledge. So diagnoses tend to fall into three categories. So the, the, this, the ideal diagnosis is explanatory as well as definitive. And so um, we'll never be able to fully explain what the, the, the background of a diagnosis with a, with a label, but um, it, it does give us an indication of what might be going on mechanistically. Descriptive. So I think veterinary medicine is particularly bad for descriptive diagnoses in, um, in, in, putting, in using clinical signs as a, as a diagnosis. Um, and we can also use it as a label um, in terms of a shortcut to, to knowing what it is. So, so in terms of going deeper into the philosophy, um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a debate in the medical world um, about whether, whether diagnosis is... is um, is realist or is it anti-realist? Um, and so anti-realism is essentially that 
a diagnosis doesn't exist in the world. It's, um, it, is, it is something which can never be observed, observed or pro proven. And I think we tend to use it in an anti-realist way. Now, the problem is with that is that it does open up um, issues with how we treat diagnoses and how we formulate diagnoses. And certainly in the human side of things, there's, there's a, a great um, trend at the moment to um, label what is normal what is normal as a diagnosis. So anyway, we don't need to worry too much about that. So diagnosis is something essentially rooted in abnormality and a deviation from the normal. We can ask what is abnormal. Um, and it's, this importance is that it obviously sets the treatment course. And that's particularly important because we're often swimming in a sea of uncertainty. So in terms of a simplified um, clinical encounter, diagnosis, we decide what's wrong, that decides the therapy, and then we can see what the response is. So how good are we at, how good are we at diagnosing? Not very. And particularly worrying is the stats I'm going to show you from the human side of things. So this is, um, this is from a paper by Goldberg, who looked at the anti-mortem anti diagnosis and then compared that to post-mortem diagnosis in, in humans. And so the, he listed studies from right the way from 1912 up to 2004, and the discordance in this is the agreement between the anti-mortem diagnosis and the post-mortem diagnosis. And I think the interesting thing about this is that it hasn't really changed in the last 100 years despite having access to more sophisticated um, modalities. Uh, and it's partly explained by the fact that, that we, we just know more and so there, there are more diagnoses out there. But I think the, the discordance between what, what, we, what, what the doctors have found before death and, and the implications for the treatment. And so um, there's also some studies looking at whether this changes with clinician certainty. And so the... For people who are, for, for doctors who are uncertain, um, there's a 50% discordance. So if, if your doctor's uncertain, then the, um, there's the, the toss of a coin as to whether they're right or not. So some systems are easier than others, or so the theory goes. But the, um, this is again on the human side, and so they looked at different um, areas of the body and whether we were better, whether doctors are better diagnosing things in different areas of the body. So um, probably the most concerning thing is that if you've got urogenital disorder, then there's a 74% discordance between what diagnosis the doctor tells you you have and what you, you may have um, on post-mortem. So, but the, the, the figures that come out of these studies are generally around the 40 to 50% discordance between anti-mortem and post-mortem diagnosis. Now, are vets any better? So there's not many studies being done on this, but the, there is some... This one is a summary of two studies from UC Davis, uh, which also looked at anti-mortem diagnosis and post-mortem diagnosis in different, in, in different areas of the body or different uh, specialisms. So these were what we would assume, well, these were um, experts in their field. So, um, and they looked at cases from 1989, 1999, and also in 2009 to see whether there's any trend. Um, but the, the average discordance between in, in veterinary medicine is very similar in 1989 to humans. In 1999, no real change, so around the 40% mark. And then the, the 2009 one is the significantly lower numbers of post-mortems being done. Um, and interestingly, one of the 
possible explanations is that it opens vets up to litigation and so um, they're less willing to do post-mortem examinations. But the discordance does seem to decrease, um, although the numbers aren't, aren't huge. So I think the, the message is, is that in terms of diagnosis, you know, we're probably wrong about 40% of the time. And it may be more in, this, this is looking at a specialist institution, so it may be, may be more in first opinion practice. So um, it'd be nice to improve this, um, and it would be just in terms of the ethical treatment of animals and um, going down a particular treatment path. So in terms of the process of diagnosis, um, it's estimated that 60 to 80 percent of the, of, the, of the data that we use in diagnosis comes from the history. Um, then that is taken and interpreted against background evidence and pathophysiology, so background knowledge that we have about the disease. Um, and then that helps us establish a diagnosis. So we often use a working hypothesis and we try and rule out alternatives. Um, so um, in terms of where we go wrong, clinical reasoning um, and in terms of in, in formulating a diagnosis, about 90% of the time it's because of what we call premature closure. And so what this means is that we, we rule out um, diagnoses too early on. Um, and there's, there's various reasons why that happens. Um, but it, it tends to be in the interpretive stage and, at the, and if we haven't got all the data to hand or we ignore some of the, da some of the data available. Some of it is a logical failure. Um, so about 10% is estimated is um, because of a, a lack of logic. And so we actually formulate the wrong differentials, um, which is a, a failure. So in terms of where we actually, where we, where we go wrong from a psychological perspective, um, which is, is an interesting but quite voluminous subject. So humans are generally quite bad decision makers um, because we're subject to lots of cognitive biases which we don't recognise in our thinking. So there's overconfidence, there's hindsight bias, um, there's something called the, the conjunction fallacy, where, um, which is a psychological term. So in terms of how we make, how we make decisions, um, we tend to, this, isn't, this is a theory, um, and not all psychologists subscribe to this, but I think it makes sense um, in terms of how we think. So the system one, which is our sort of subconscious automatic, um, this, is, this, this system is uh, informed by patterns and by experience. And so this is minimal effort. So we just do this without thinking. System two is, the, is, is probably the interesting one, and, and this is triggered by system one when, we, when it spots an inconsistency in the pattern that, is, that, that we're trying to recognise. This takes a lot of effort, and so the, there's some interesting studies on looking at people's pupil diameter when they have to use system two, and that your pupils dilate, your heart rate goes up, you start to sweat, um, and it's active thinking, and it's quite exhausting if you have to do it for a period of time. And so um, the... the the general psychology is that, um, which we'll refer back to um, in, a, in a moment. Um, but the, there is a question about whether our, our diagnostic capabilities improve with age or with experience. And so most studies look at novices, so undergraduates, early graduates, and then experienced clinicians. So the, there's a general trend for experience. As you increase your clinical experience, um, and from looking at how experts think and what they formulate, they, they produce fewer differentials, 
those differentials are more likely to include a correct diagnosis. And the selection of tests to relate alternative is more logical. And it, it tends to lead to increased speed of diagnosis and success. So we can look at how, how people um, do make decisions. So novices tend to, and, and undergraduates are generally taught in a way which um, promotes back, backward reasoning. So we, formulate, we look at the data, we formulate differential lists, um, and then we use a hypothetical deductive way of thinking to try and rule out things. As we get a bit more experienced, we become a bit more inductive in our reasoning and, and um, in terms of summarizing the data. And so it, it tends to be that we, as I said before, you produce fewer differentials and they're more likely to be right. Um, but there is a strong, there's still quite a strong emphasis on pathophysiology at that point. What's interesting is when we look at experts and how they reason and how they come to a diagnosis. And so they, they tend to use a mixture of the two. And this, the concept I'm going to talk about in more detail is the use of illness scripts, which um, are mental constructs, which help experts come to a diagnosis more quickly. The interesting thing from an educational perspective is that illness scripts and expertise in diagnosis and reasoning um, cannot, be, cannot be acquired by generic problem-solving ability. And so teaching people how to solve problems is not thought to increase, improve your diagnostic um, accuracy. So in terms of clinicians and how we might improve diagnostics and how we may teach vets better. So looking at what experts do, and so they use a lot of system one uh, functions, and so they discard non-pertinent data subconsciously, and they tend to get rid of about 80 to 90% of data, and they, and they do that without thinking. Interestingly, when they, they are much better at picking up inconsistencies in the pattern um, or in the presentation, and they devote time and energy on this rather than formulating long differential lists. And so the, they, they do also integrate sort of social, in, in the human side, social environmental factors, and they do that subconsciously, and that helps lower, narrow, down, narrow down the hypotheses or the differentials. And when you ask, when you ask an expert, certainly in the, in the human world, when they've done interviews with experts, they do know the pathophysiology, but they're not, they can't explain it and how it fits into their diagnosis as well as what novices do. And so it's thought that this, that this background knowledge is part of their system one um, in, their, in their brain. And then they also, the theory is that they use these illness scripts um, to help get to a diagnosis more quickly. So illness scripts. These are essentially a knowledge network in the memory. So a little bit like the mind palace of Sherlock Holmes, um, probably a bit less um, uh, detailed than that. But they tend to have a knowledge network in memory, so they have connections between bits of data and background theory. And, and they, create, they create these when they see a particular disease, and they're created subconsciously. They may add to them, and they may become more sophisticated as they see more similar cases. And so by way of representing a, a, what an illness script might look like, so... On the left here um, is, the, is the attribute, so it's the, it's the clinical feature of the disease. Um, and they tend to, they, people tend to list them in, in, in chronological order, although that's not too important. And then they ascribe a, a, a degree of abnormality or severity to that particular clinical feature. They, and this relationship is, built, is part of this knowledge network 
where they where they look at relationships between both both within the um, the clinical con the clinical complaint or so so the dyspnea um, so they use a uh, a link between it's not just dyspnea it's dyspnea with sudden onset so this one is um, if you haven't guessed it is a, is a is an illness script for congestive heart failure. And so, and then the prevalence, so they have a background idea about how common that particular clinical feature is in this disease, and, and that leads them to the diagnosis. So, um, so that, that, that can range from invariably, so it's always present, so congestive heart failure, the dyspnea is always present, and it's normally fairly sudden, sudden onset. Um, and so, and then there's a, there's a lot of background um, knowledge about patterns and, and, and things. So, you know, King Charles Cocker Spaniels are more likely, you know, less than 20 kilos looking at mitral disease. So you kind of get the picture. So the implementation of, of, of scripts are subconscious. So um, again, using their system one, um, they use, they, it's experts tend to pull up a lot of scripts subconsciously during examination. They tend to go through them um, subconsciously. And then they, they dismiss a lot of them with, as, as more data becomes available. And then it's the inconsistencies in the presentation which may trigger their system too and their conscious, conscious thought. So it, it tends to be that, we, that, that experts are better at diagnosis. And so it'd be quite useful if other people could learn how to do this. We can't really, unfortunately, we can't really learn scripts from other people. So it tends to be a matter of experience and training your system, the system one of your brain. They can't use, so, so we can't transmit them. Although we can articulate what illness scripts are, and experts can sit down and write them out so people can see. Things. And so part of the problem is, is that there's no substitute for this, for this clinical experience. And so we can make this more, we can make ourselves more likely to produce good illness scripts by the environment in which we learn. As I said before, that you can't teach them through generic problem-solving skills. So, problem-based learning is, is is widespread in the in the veterinary curriculum, um, and so it does call into question whether this is the best way of learning. Now, it's unfortunately we don't really know whether we need to go through the problem-based learning step as a novice in order to become more expert expert thinkers and expert expert diagnosticians. So it is useful in formulating a knowledge base. It can't, it's not the whole answer. Um, and I think the, the, the problem is with, with novice thinkers and problem-based learning, and as our knowledge of disease increases, is that it's very easy to drown in, in, the, in, the, in the possible differentials. So the attraction of problem-based learning is that it's very structured. It's, it's quite a rational way of doing things. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't always correlate with how clinicians act, i.e., you know, the, the application of data and in this sea of uncertainty, um, scientific methods are limited. So explicit script production can help, and so um, experts laying down their thinking and what they... Yeah. Um, and that would... I think it's difficult to say that, we, we, that problem-based learning um, isn't the right way, but I think there may be better ways of training people and also training ourselves to be better diagnosticians. So any questions I'd be happy to take.